Hi, Fresh Ed listeners, it's Will. I wanted to tell you about a new project we're launching called Fresh Ed Flux, which aims to encourage new voices in education podcasting. Are you a graduate student who wants to develop, produce, and deliver a creatively complex, multi-voiced, globally rich, narrative-style episode for Fresh Ed Flux? If so, we want to hear from you. We are interested in putting together an episode that will showcase your deep-dive storytelling, which is informed by cutting-edge ideas and issues in education broadly defined. Your episode will be made for an English-speaking audience, but could include other languages that have been translated into English. And it will be between 20 and 30 minutes long. If you are the successful candidate, you will be awarded a stipend of 2,500 US dollars, and your episode will be aired on Fresh Ed next year. I'm really excited about this project, and I encourage you to get in touch with your ideas. You can find more details at freshedpodcast.com slash flux. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash flux. Now on with today's show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we talk about the complexities of private higher education worldwide and how some private universities and colleges respond to and have been impacted by the coronavirus. The most vulnerable kind of institution is what I would say is the most common kind of private institution, tuition dependent. Families lose income. They often can't pay the tuition. This is particularly the case with the tuition dependent institutions because they tend to be the lower status institutions with the less well off of the higher education population. My guest is Daniel Levy, a professor at the University of Albany, State University of New York. He's currently co-written a report entitled, How COVID-19 Puts Private Higher Education at Especially High Risk and Not. Early Observations Plus Propositions for Ongoing Global Exploration. Daniel Levy, welcome to Fresh Ed. It's good to be here. Thank you. Can you give me just the sort of general shape and size of the private higher education sector today? Yes. And I think that um, it might surprise many that the size is about a third of all higher education enrollment in the world. So that might translate very roughly to 70 million students. Wow, that's enormous. Yes, um, I think it might come as a particular surprise to um, Europeans and others in the developed world because the uh, concentration is more in the developing world. So in what parts of the developing world? Do we see private higher education sort of more pronounced than, say, public higher education? Yes. And when we say more pronounced, we're talking about strictly in enrollment terms. We we have many systems in which private higher education may have even a majority of the enrollments. And yet by non-enrollment indicators of importance, the public sector would still be weightier if we could say. Yes, for example, and we could in the course of this interview a hundred times say, except for the United States, but this will be the first, except for the United States, it's rather rare for 
major research to be done in private um, colleges and even what I call private universities. So that's one example of weight. Related would be which sector, private or public, has most of the prestigious professors and most of the students who are going to graduate into influential positions. So an example, I'm just thinking of uh, the context that I know well, uh, Cambodia. So they have the Royal University of Phnom Penh, which is a public university, prestigious, well-known professors, does research. And then there are universities like Panasatra University, which is a well-known private university, um, but is much more focused on the teaching. And so that's sort of what you're describing in a sense. It's a perfect example. Um, and it's an example that reinforces um, my confidence in the basic private-public dynamic in higher education outside the United States, because it's something, something like what you describe is something I was researching in Latin America decades ago, when you would not have had private higher education in a country like Cambodia. And yet, as more and more regions of the world and more and more countries within the regions have allowed private higher education, the private higher education has tended to follow the patterns that we've seen in countries that previously had higher private higher education other than the United States. So that suggests that there are reasons, that there are underlying dynamics. There are underlying dynamics of why it's pretty rare for even what we would call loosely a good private university, such as you cite in Cambodia, it would be good in teaching. It would be good for its students. It would still usually not be doing research. Is this phenomenon of private higher education relatively new? Like what historically is, is this, is, has it always been about a third of the higher education sector or has it increased in the last few decades? It's certainly closer to the latter. Historically, if we went back to the, to say 1950, we would see outside the United States, private higher education would be rather spotty. Um, a number of countries in Asia would have already had private higher education. The private higher education that existed was often religious. That's the case in Europe as well. And the origins there would be largely that higher education, which may have even for centuries rather fused uh, public and private with, in the, with the triumph of classic liberalism in the 19th century, universities became basically public. And that left the more religiously oriented families uh, feeling out of the picture. So this, is, this captures Europe and Latin America, for example. And they often took a second best alternative. The best leading established universities were going to be public. 
but they wanted some presence of their own, and governments often accommodated them by allowing what was generally um, a Catholic um, uh, sector, which was thought of more as Catholic than as private per se, but, but it was private. So other than the United States, which has a continuous existence of private, really from its colonial days, but definitely from the beginning of its independent days, a strong, clearly private, private sector. Other than that, um, the beginning of massive contemporary private higher education that would eventually cover the world is located largely in Latin America. Is it totally fortuitous that my own background and training in political science had me specialized in Latin America and in studying Latin American higher education, private hit me. I wasn't looking for it. I hadn't known it was there, but uh, I saw the private there and it was indeed Latin America that was the first developing region to see private higher education spread by the middle of the 20th century to spread like wildfire to where it reached every country except the one you would guess, Cuba. But now the phenomenon is so worldwide that we're hard put count even 10 countries out of 180 that have no private higher education. So Cuba is one, but even other communist countries are not included in the 10. And that's an example of how far private higher education has come, that you would see it not only in the post-communist countries of Eastern Europe and Central Asia, but that you would see it in countries that still call themselves communist, like Vietnam and China. They have significant private sectors. China's gigantic just by the total volume of higher education, but private higher education has become ubiquitous so that there are very few countries that don't have both public and private. Depending upon how you identify the regions of the world, every region has significant private higher education. So it, it's interesting that, you know, when we think of the word private, it obviously encompasses many different types of higher education, as you said, religious being one. So I guess one of the questions I have then is, is when did the idea of for-profit higher education emerge? Because that, that seems like a relatively new phenomenon. It is a relatively new phenomenon. It has precursors um, on the very borders of higher education so that, for example, if we go back to colonial times in Africa, there were correspondence courses that conferred certain kinds of diplomas and certificates. Were they higher education? Were they post-secondary? They were often post-secondary, but if you had a strict definition of higher or tertiary, you might not include them. But some of these were, were clearly legally for-profit operations. In the United States, for-profit does have origins from very early on alongside non-profit private and nonprofit private is 
uh, largely religious. But as private higher education began to spread in most regions, again, looking at Latin America as the kind of paradigm or the jumping off point, in terms of ideology and norms about what education in general should be, the dominant feeling, at least outside the United States, remains to this very day that education is, or at least ought to be, preferably a public function, not a private function. So when private higher education is allowed in country after country, it's usually allowed with a, with a but or a qualification. Political arrangements are made. You can have private higher education, but it can't do the following things. In, in many um, African countries, for example, you can open a private college, but you can't call it a private university. University is, is something reserved for public. And sometimes that's just nomenclature and a matter of prestige and pride, but sometimes it involves substantive restrictions on what can be offered to students or, or done in matters of service or even applied research. So for-profit was a step too far in most cases when private higher education was allowed in Latin America in no country was for-profit allowed. So in some cases, the law was silent and the understanding was that private would have to be non-profit. This allowed considerable room for blurry borders and institutions, private institutions, have been very adept at making money while being not legally for-profit. Now, in fairness, especially in recent decades, we could argue that many public universities, including in the developed world, have become very adept at making money. They've been very adept at including for-profit actors for dormitories, for food services, for lots of contracting out. In fact, they've been pushed by governments to do this because governments don't want to bear the full cost. So public universities, have become, if you'll forgive the use of the term, partially privatized. And even though they don't meet the technical definition of for-profit, which involves having share owners who invest and take money out of the institution, that would be clearly for-profit. Again, allowed in the United States, but until recently not allowed in many other places. Even without formally extracting profit, they still generate them. And you could be paying your brother-in-law, well, maybe not your brother-in-law, but you could be paying your brother or a friend a ridiculously high salary to give advice to the college or university. And yet, by the law, technically, it would not be a violation. So you, you could still be a nonprofit. Now, because of this, because of all the legal loopholes allowed, some countries did decide, well, if there's going to be de facto for-profit, what we often call for-profits in disguise. They were really operating like for-profits, but they bore the title of nonprofit and reaped tax advantages accordingly. So in the 1990s, 
independently both brazil and peru decided if we have this de facto for profit let's concede to reality let's allow for profit but make it clear that existing institutions and future private institutions have to choose either they'll be truly non-profit without the nonsense or they can declare themselves for profit and operate in many ways like any other business even under business law but they will pay taxes that's a big difference in fact for profits to avoid the pejorative connotations of the term for profit in most of the world including even the united states for profits often like to call themselves not for profits but tax paying institutions so what what they're doing is that they're spitting on the nonprofits and even the public institutions, which they think are really making money and doing pretty much the same things, but are getting away with not paying taxes. Oh, how complicated. But it's interesting because it seems as if both, you know, if we if we see it as a dichotomy between private and public, in fact, it's sort of more of a continuum. And we see a lot of private and a lot of public in all types of universities and colleges, it seems. Absolutely. And um, I would say that on the one hand, one major criticism of my kind of research in looking at private and comparing it with public um, starts with that observation. Well, you know, it's a blur. And my response is that I start with the legal designation of the institutions. They are legally private, they are legally public. And then we start the real exploration. Well, just how private is a private institution? And many of the private institutions have quite a bit of publicness. They come under government regulations. Some of them even get some public money. This is interesting. They very rarely get money in the same way or to the same degree that the public colleges and universities do. So my response is that, in fact, when you add up all the evidence we have from all the country, legally private institutions are much more private than legally public institutions, even though that depends on country, even though there's blurring, there's particularly blurring over time. So the United States, with the oldest private sector, has a tremendous amount of public money coming in. But I'll just take the example of the national money. The United States uniquely did not have much of a national government role in higher education until Cold War era. And then when the national government would start funding the private sector, it wanted to clearly protect against the interface being the same as in the public sector. So the national government doesn't basically give annual subsidies to private colleges and universities. It gives money in two fundamental ways. It gives money to students directly. These are really vouchers. And then the student chooses the institution, private or public, and the national government doesn't care whether the institution is private or public. Um, and the other way is research. You put in a research proposal. It's supposed to be judged on its merit, aligned to whether it comes from a professor in a private or a public 
university. But although that amounts to a lot of money in the United States, the flow of the money is still different and you don't have the direct subsidization dependence relationship that you have with public institutions. But in most countries, so you could take Cambodia, 19 out of 20 republics in, in Latin America, private-public distinction is, in fact, a lot clearer. It's a lot more decisive than it is in the United States. So the typical private higher education institution, it's all or most of its money from tuition and fees. It can't generate other money. It doesn't get money from alumni. It doesn't get money from business. It doesn't get money from philanthropy. Um, it doesn't do contract research. So it has a very thin, narrow um, revenue profile, completely private. It doesn't get anything from government. That's a, that's a rather typical situation. What, when we move to the better known of the private universities, we're more likely to see funds generated from business, from alumni who have done well, and even in indirect um, uh, funding from particular government agencies. It's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, bringing up this issue of funding and the heavy reliance, but not maybe the total reliance on student fees in many countries when it comes to private higher education, it brings up the issue of the coronavirus. And, you know, we're recording basically mid-August of 2020. Many universities are preparing to start soon, um, the next academic year. So, you know, it makes me wonder what has happened to private universities? What sort of impact has, has coronavirus had on private universities and, and maybe in particular on, on some of their funding sources that they, they might be expecting from student fees? Let me start with one very specific point because it connects to the very last point that we were discussing in the non-corona context, and that is tuition. So the most vulnerable institutions in general in the first higher education encounter with corona, which is in many countries the last semester and likely will be carried forth into this coming semester, is related to tuition. Where families get hit financially by the corona crisis, the most vulnerable kind of institution is what I would say is the most common kind of private institution, tuition dependent. If families lose income, they often can't pay the tuition. This is particularly the case with the tuition dependent institutions because they tend to be the lower status institutions with the less well off of the higher education population. Other private institutions, and even many public institutions, tend to have students from economically better off families. They too will be suffering financially under corona, but they're less likely to be disabled financially by them. Do you, do you think there'll be an increase in, um, you know, like student debt, like more countries uh, where students end up borrowing money to go to university? 
That's a fascinating question. And I would have to say that there were more in the realm of speculation than evidence. We could see already, in regard to your prior question about tuition, that institutions that were tuition dependent were immediately hit hard. Of course, at this point. <laughs> as far as the relief that may come, we got just glimpses in the last semester. So, for example, better off private university, even what I call semi-elite one, don't do a lot of research, but have very well-prepared students and faculty like Waseda University in Japan. They made a decision, at least in the last semester, not to cut the tuition, but to provide relief to needy families. The typical private institution couldn't dream of doing such a thing, doesn't have the means to do it. And so those are, and this we established in, in work in the last decade pre-corona. If you get a downturn in the total demand for higher education, the institutions that are hit the hardest are the weak tuition-dependent private institution. But there we engage something that you and I were speaking with before the interview in that um, you speculate that for all the evils of the corona crisis, aggregate higher education enrollment may not turn out to be one of the casualties. Um, and I think that that has a crucial private-public dimension, because if total demand does shrink, these tuition-dependent private institutions will be the most likely to fold or to merge um, with others. But if demand holds up or even increases, even some of these demand-absorbing, we've called them, institutions, they may not know very much about how to teach well. They know nothing about research, but they do know a thing or two often about marketing. And it's quite possible that some of them, they're, they're not as encumbered by government regulations. They're not nearly as encumbered by faculty. Faculty, I can give eyewitness, can be major encumbrances if you're trying to maximize entrepreneurial agility in a fast-changing job market, let's suppose that you're right, Will, and aggregate demand increases. Well, as you also said before the interview, it's likely to be a demand with a different shape to it. Who's going to respond fastest to that and even help manufacture demand, not leave it to the potential consumer to figure out that higher education may be a rational thing to do at this point, but to sell them the idea, more advertising. Now, I think the biggest, most natural beneficiaries of this generalizing will tend to be private more than public in many countries because they have more professional management, in fact, business management, in fact, sometimes from their business ownership. So a changing marketplace is their game. Most of the weak tuition-dependent institutions have some advantages in agility, but they're still pretty small operations. In many cases, they're family operations without very skilled professional management. They may be sort of market savvy, but they don't have MBA degrees. But when you get to the when you get to the more prestigious private institutions that have been very um, locked into the job market, 
as basically what they do in their teaching. And they're not locked into the research world, but they're locked into the world of employment. And they have professional management. They may fare particularly well. So if I could just put two principal facts that your questions had have led to together. The principal danger for the private more than the public lies in their tuition dependence where they have it. And if there is any slide inability to afford higher education, which in most countries, private, well, in all countries, private does charge. And in most countries, there are not well-developed loan programs. So the big danger for the lower tier private institutions is uh, from the corona financial impact is that students simply won't be able to pay. And, and if they're unemployed, they don't have a job, so they may want to go to higher education, but they won't be able to afford the tuition. That's the biggest danger for the private sector. But the largest advantage that we already see the beginning of in our report, and which could be an advantage going forward, lies in the professional managerial agility, particularly of the um, more substantial private universities to deal um, quickly with changing conditions where public universities with the same degree of intelligence and the same desire for enrollment may not be as able to deal with the situation. You know, it's an interesting, the, the two sort of insights that you share there. Um, I, I recently started a position at UCL um, just before coronavirus. And before that, I was at Waseda in Japan. And so I, I more or less got to see how a top tier private university in Japan um, responded to coronavirus by reading about it online. And it was instant. As you said, they provided relief to students in need. They also gave out laptops and cell phones and, you know, internet devices so students can connect to, to their Zoom classes. And it was so, so fast. Whereas UCL has been much slower and um, in many ways um, much more dependent on government advice and guidance, which was changing and slow. And so it was, you know, it's a really fascinating um, experience to live through, you know, for two, two very different universities, two very good universities, but in a sense, two very different responses to the coronavirus. I think that as the broadest generalization, as broad as it is, I think valid, what we see so far with the corona crisis is that the private public similarities and differences in responses and in impacts flows logically from the underlying private public configurations. And so you see this greater hesitation in the public sector, and you see it even in the UK. And there I would say, I, I see your comment and, and I double it because one of the other variables is that uh, you have countries like the UK and Australia and New Zealand, where the public sector, though it may 
seem slow compared to the private is a whole lot less bureaucratic than it is in most of the world and even in most of Europe. The, the continental European tradition was much more government, national government centered with much less autonomy to the institutions to make some of their own decisions. So the sort of government dependence which has slowed things in country after country in the public sector, it, it probably Probably the problems that public sector would face in the UK would be problems that many public sectors in the world would wish for compared to what what they have to deal with. I mean, the, the Ethiopian government can make whatever decision it wants, and the next week it could change that decision, and universities have to conform, public universities in particular. In more democratic open settings, as in the United States, you get a tug, you get the political struggles over what should be done, and one side gets the upper hand, the policies go in one direction, the other side gets the upper hand, they go in the other, whereas a university like Wasada does have some buffer from that. It can, um, you know, on the one hand, it doesn't have to wait for government. <clears throat> on the other hand, it does not have to widely, slowly consult its faculty and its students. In lots of Latin America and Europe, you have more of a co-government situation at the institutional level where the top decision-making body is a university council. It's not composed of professional managers. It's composed some of the amateur administrators, the faculty, student representatives, and even representatives of the worker. They have to deliberate much harder. So they are going to be slower. And, and that governance arrangement that I just mentioned is something that originated in the public sector and is still much more common there than it is in the private sector. I should add, Wasada University president is elected among faculty members and is a faculty member. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not a sort of managerial class like you might find at, at you know, in the UK, for instance. It doesn't have, I, I mean, I don't actually know about the idea of if it has a council or not, like some of the Latin American countries. There are uh, a number of private universities, particularly the better one, that in order to attract better faculty have had to yield some on the strong managerial hand from above. What often happens is that the faculty themselves are somewhat different. So I first saw this in a, in a good semi-elite university in Peru, private, called the, the University of Lima. I was astonished when I saw that over time, this one highly centralized university, just run by the bosses on top, had a form of co-government. And how could this possibly be? The whole logic of the institution is a top-down, we know what we're doing, we make efficient decisions. And the answer was partly, you know, the kind of faculty and the kind of students who come here are not the kind who go to the national University at San Marcos, much more left-oriented, much more radical in their politics, much less deferential. So again, what we point to is a blurring of otherwise strong private-public distinctions. Even some of the 
more mundane, tuition-dependent private institutions, on average, had an advantage over the entirety of the public sector when it came to switching to online. And this became sharpest when you moved away from the very bottom of the private and you went to the ones that were tied into the job market. They had already introduced online modality to significant degrees in the decade before Corona. So Argentina is a striking example. The private institutions, even the quite mediocre ones, always on the lookout for enrollment, introduced online modalities and had a significant percentage of their enrollment online. And they had infrastructure and they had faculty accustomed to teaching online and they had students accustomed to taking courses. The largest and most important university in Argentina, the National University, the University of Buenos Aires, had no online presence whatsoever. Why? Because the faculty, not without reason, thought that online was an inferior form of teaching. It's a valid critique, but where the power lay in the University of Buenos Aires, it meant no online presence. So to introduce any online in the University of Buenos Aires public, even in the midst of the crisis, has proven a battle. And no doubt, many students from the University of Buenos Aires will shift to private alternatives where they can afford it in order to be able to continue their higher education. So the, the online is the most vivid example of the major general private advantage that may exist over public, which is quickness. It's a really fascinating report because it's sort of early evidence of what is happening in private higher education because of the coronavirus, how universities respond, how there's differences in the private universities, the governance structures. It's such a complicated and complex phenomenon that's taking place. So, you know, I just want to say thank you for finding some empirical evidence in the beginning. I'm sure there's a lot more work to do as, as the crisis unfolds in the months and years to come. Daniel Levy, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed, and I really appreciated our conversation today. Thank you very much, Will. It's been quite edifying for me, and um, it's a tough subject to talk about when we get to COVID, but uh, something we have to deal with and the private public dimension is an important part of the higher education reality. Well, thank you for starting the conversation on it. Daniel Levy is a professor at the University of Albany, State University of New York. He's currently co-written a report entitled How COVID-19 Puts Private Higher Education at Especially High Risk and Not. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.